0: What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today,
1: today we're talking about collecting, talking about collectible card games, CCGs, the backbone of the hobby in a lot of ways. If you think about Magic, The Gathering, and what kind of a role it plays in gaming today, and we're talking to Asad Qureshi from Haunted Castle Gaming. Asad, welcome back to the show. <laughs> Thank you for having me again. Yeah, man, really excited to talk to you. You've had a, you had a few things going on since last time you were here, it's been <laughs> over a year. And uh, last time we were talking about playtesting and different systems and you you were working on a CCG, you had just basically brought it to life. It hadn't been out that long. And now it's been a little over a year. And so you've been working through all the different challenges, all the pros, the cons of the CCG style of of company and game and whatnot. So I'm really pumped. Just kind of get your thoughts and ideas, because this is something a lot of people say, don't do it. (laughs) don't start a ccg do something different it's not going to work you're going to lose all your money but you have said no i'm going to forge my own path i'm going to make this work so i'm really pumped to see what you're doing how you're doing it but first just in case people didn't hear that last episode who are you how'd you get into game design all that kind (laughs) of thing
2: so um i don't know how much of a background i should give uh i been playing collectible card games my entire life card games have just been the focal point of my Uh, personality. As a kid, someone once asked me, what makes you happy in life? And it took me a couple of months, but the only answer I could give him was shuffling cards. Like having cards in my hand just was such a euphoria. So um, getting into game design was inevitable for me. Uh, I studied computer science. I studied English. And I just love this idea of bringing arts, bringing um, logic and maths into this one system that you can use to bring players together and connect with them. So I've been designing games for almost 20 years now, uh, at least collectible card games. I've been designing games for close to 30 years, actually. Um, And yeah, then I decided, hey, I want to learn more about product design and marketing and sales. So I decided, okay, I'm going to make my own game and bring it to a convention. Uh, That's when I took Genesis to a small convention here in Ontario called uh, SkyCon. Uh, we took it there, not expecting to do much in sales. We ended up selling almost all of our inventory right away. And I decided, okay, this is where I want to be. This is um, the space I want to be in.
1: Yeah, very cool. And so let's get into Genesis. Genesis Battle of Champions, a CCG you've been working on for quite some time. It's yeah. getting into multiple sets now. It's not just one set. And we'll get into that I think. But first of all, before we get into actually before we get into your game, why do you think these style of games one were so incredibly popular back in like <laughs> mid nineties when Magic came out and there were you know a thousand yeah. different CCGs that came out? Yeah, and even now it's like I said earlier, it's the backbone of the hobby. This is what keeps most gaming stores in business is yeah. you know people coming in and buying booster packs and buying new sets for
2: Magic things like that. Why yeah. is that? Why are people so drawn to these kinds of games? Uh, so one thing I've noticed a lot, I. I find gamers, they kind of break down into, I don't want to overgeneralize, but I've seen two kind of categories of gamers. One that loves spending a lot of their time mastering one game and finding a lot of depth and complexity in that one game. And then there's the players who uh, like trying a bunch of different things. And it's its a very different uh, type of mindset for these players. And I know for people who get into hobbies, the big interesting thing for them is As the system changes, as new elements are presented into the game, uh, how do you master that? How do you conquer that? And how do you take that next step forward in gameplay? And that kind of aspect, it can keep you entrenched into that one game for a very, very long time. And for some players, that's what they love. They don't want to context switch. They don't want to uh, change from thinking about one strategy to another. They want to mask the one thing they do. It's the same reason I like comparing ccgs to sports a lot and you know football basketball any of those games why do the people love playing that one game for 20 plus years or 30 plus years it's because they love mastering it no matter how good you get you can still get a little bit better
1: yeah that's a really really good point i hadn't thought about it i I love playing football Mm -hmm. because i'm good at it and because i've did it for 10 years of my life and i learned all the things so i want to keep doing it versus going out and learning how to play golf which I i have no idea how to do i'm Definitely terrible at. That's a really interesting uh, way to look at it from the gaming side of things. Real quick though, just realize. Let's get a good working definition. What is a CCG?
2: What is a collectible card game at its core? uh okay. So, collectible card games. uh, I remember when I was defining Genesis, and I was like, I have to call it. Actually, we call it a tactical collectible card game, and each of those four words has a very distinct purpose. So the game aspect is a lot of people know what a game is, but there are different uh, specific definitions. I mean, if you go into game theory, they define games in different ways. Uh, In this genre, we like to define games as like, uh, there is a set of rules, and there's a different end state that you're trying to hit. And as long as you're following within those rules, and you hit those end states, that defines a game, right? Card games It's a game, just it uses cards as its core mechanic. Not that it doesn't use other things, it's just it focuses around the cards. You can't play the game without the cards. Collectability. The big aspect here is that whatever you buy as your base set, there is more to buy to it. But buying more doesn't just mean you need more pieces. It's also, there are other elements to it that you want to collect. If you look at Magic, there are people who uh, buy into a set and want to get one copy of every single card. Or like Pokemon and getting one copy of every single Pokemon. But then there's also people who want to dig into the lore and collect all their favorite artwork of a given character and different artworks for that same characters. That collectability gives you more to do outside of the game itself. And that's a very important part. And then for Genesis, we added the keyword tactical to it because the game, the one big distinguishing feature of Genesis compared to all other CCGs is that tactical element. It adds so much more depth to the game than... Uh, Any other collectible card game can have because of the fact that Genesis plays uh, more like a tactical game than it does a traditional CCG.
1: Yeah, and I think in today's world you're going to have to do something to set yourself apart from magic. Everybody knows magic, and so you got to do something <laughs> different, yes. right? And magic, it doesn't matter if I play my card on the left or the center on the right. Who, who yeah. cares? It's just a card in front of me. And mm-hmm. so you're like, okay, how do we make this actual an actual system yes. and make it, you know, interesting and give players choices and, and yeah. things like that? Real quick, let's get another kind of definition, like a, a difference. What's the difference between a CCG collectible card game and an LCG a <laughs> living card
2: game? That might be some another phrase yeah. that people have heard tossed around. Yeah. So uh, CCG, uh, you buy your core starter deck uh, and you buy just, say, a few boost packs, but you're not done collecting. There's always more to add to it. Where in LCG, when you buy the box, if you buy a copy of, just say, the introduction box for Dominion or Ascension, uh, you don't have to buy anything more. And that game plays in its entirety within that small given set. But a CCG... Uh, no matter how much you purchase you're always at a state of being semi-incomplete there's always a little bit more that you can add to it and for some people they've perceived this as a money sink and i can understand why on the player end it seems like oh you're spending so much money and you never hit a completion point but for a design perspective and from a other end of the player perspective, having a non-definitive endpoint is actually really important because it allows you to have more space in the future to design more things, create more things, or as a player, to never have a reason to stop playing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. What do you think are are some of the differences in psychology for people that prefer CCGs versus that people versus people that prefer lcgs i mean there's something about opening a booster pack (laughs) and and searching through to see what rare card you got and oh man it's the one i've been looking for forever or oh this is this is not what i it's almost like playing the lottery you know playing scratch offs and so like tell me a little bit about psychology of kind of
2: both sides uh so i i know a lot of people who get into the lcg space and why they actively hate ccgs especially people who are perfectionists or completists and they're like i can never finish this so what's the point of starting it uh but in an lcg they get everything they need they can play it a few times put it on the shelf when they're done and don't have to worry about it as long as they've gotten their value out of it so there are some gamers who their value out of it is just having the game on the shelf other people say okay i spent fifty dollars on this uh i want to get at least like you know, $10 an hour. So I want to play this for five hours or something like that, right? Uh, so LCGs work really well for that kind of mindset. But in CCG, there is this chase. There is this aspect of opening up a booster pack, getting the cards you want or getting the cards you didn't want, and then going to buy more. And that kind of the chase, the drive, it's very exciting, especially when you think, okay, I spent $5 on this pack, but inside of it, I got a card that on the secondary market is worth $50. Well, now I got 10 times my value. That's amazing. Uh, or you got a card that can now add into your deck, which can help you win tournaments into the future, which will get you more money out of it. L- CCGs, because of the chase factor, because of kind of the rentability, I think it also creates a bit of a lifestyle uh, within this one game, compared to, comparing to having your lifestyle being the genre of board games.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's funny. I remember where I was when I was a kid, and I was playing... Pokemon and Pokemon had just come out and just become a big thing. I remember where I was when I opened the booster pack and found a foil Charizard and it was just this <laughs> yeah. amazing moment. Like it's, it's kind yeah. of funny how your brain just latches onto things yeah. and it's, uh, it's just interesting. Now, why in the world did you decide to design one of these? Cause I'm sure people were like, don't do it. It's a money sink. You're going to lose everything. It's a waste oh, yeah. of time. It's going to take, so what in the world made you go, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to start a company. I'm going to create this game. I'm going to do all these sets, make it a mm-hmm. CCG. Walk me through your kind of thought process on the front end before you really got started. And let's come up all the way to now and kind of what maybe some things have changed. Maybe you're seeing yeah.
2: things differently. So when I started working on collectible card games, the concept of LCGs didn't even exist. This is pre-Dominion. So Dominion itself was the first LCG, uh, or at least the first game to take that title of LCG. Um, and I've been playing collectible card games since I was... I don't even remember, like a long, long time ago. I started in the early, early days of Magic. Of course, I didn't understand the value of those cards, so I kind of wish I held on to some of those cards in better condition. But um, I've always loved the idea of collectible card games. So in high school, when me and my friends were playing uh, Magic and we started running out of money, we still wanted to have a collectible card game to play, but we didn't have the money, so we would... Uh, make our own collectible card games, and then create these tiny little booster packs. And then the winner of a game would get to open up a booster pack and edit their deck and go from there. And then as I got older and decided, okay, I want to publish my own game. It's one of those, uh, it's that old adage of, you know, write what you know. This was design what you know. I played more collectible card games than any other type of gaming. And it was just the one space that I understood better than any other space. So that's why I went with collectible card games uh, initially. Yeah, gotcha. And so when it came time to start a
1: company, right? What were you thinking going in? Did did you have these you know visions of grandeur of like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to make the next Magic, or were you a little more reserved? Just be honest. You were know, you a little more reserved <laughs> and and more kind of grounded. Like, what were you thinking before you know the company really got to
2: where yeah. it is now? I think uh, more recently in the past month or so was the first time ever that me, like I sat with the game design team and we honestly could feel it in our heart and in our soul that we can make it, that we can actually be on not just the top 10, but potentially the top five CCGs ever, because uh, it's a really competitive space to be in. Uh, So I think that's the first time we really felt it. But in the early days, it wasn't about that. It was actually about the pursuit of learning. I started making collectible card games because yes, I I wanted to learn game design. I wanted to make a game, but then it evolved into, I want to learn game design. Then I used it as a medium in university to study computer science, to study English, Uh, any assignment I had, I was like, okay, how do I convert this into my passion of designing a collectible card game? Then when I graduated and started working at my first software company, I wanted to learn about project planning. So I used it, again, as a medium to practice project planning. I wanted to learn about sales, so I used it as a medium to learn about sales. Eventually, it got to a point where I said, I want to learn what it's like to run my own company. So that's what I did. I used gaming as a medium to run my own company. It was never this uh, thought that, yes, I'm going to be making million dollars off of this, and I'm going to be doing as well as uh, Richard Garfield or anything like that. No, it was always about uh, I I had a very modest goal and I just wanted to achieve that goal. But now I'm at a point where I'm running a company. And the one thing that's going through my mind is that I want this company to be successful enough that all my employees can work under it, making a good living, and that we are doing something we're passionate about. So it's more about running the company and getting the company to succeed through selling Genesis than it is to get Genesis up there as one of the most popular games.
1: Yeah, very cool. And you brought while you're talking about all the different things that you had going on, they were all aimed at the same goal, at the same target. And yeah. so everything you were doing was was pursuing in, in one main thing. I think that's okay. super important because it gives you a really good decision filter. And yeah. everything you're doing in life, you just put through that filter and go, okay, does this help me get closer to what I'm trying to accomplish or further away? Yeah. And it makes it a lot easier to to make decisions. It also reminds me, so I've had students in my English class, especially sophomores, you know, 10th mm-hmm. graders, and we're writing yeah. stories, and uh, sometimes they'll they'll ask me you know, Mr. Barry, what, what do you think of this story? And I'll have to tell them, okay, based on like the grand idea of story, it's not any good. And they'll get a little bit discouraged. I go, but, but think about this for a second. How yeah. long have you been writing stories? And they mm-hmm. say, well, you know, I, I just, just started like, like less than a year. I said, okay. So from, you know, that standpoint, you've only been doing this a very, very short amount of time. Let's think about this. You know, how old are you? I'm 15. Okay. So you're like a level 15 human, right? Yeah. And you're a level less than one writer. Think about how good of a human you were at less than one. Were you any good as a human? Like, No, you couldn't walk. You couldn't talk. You couldn't do anything. <laughs> and so think on those terms, right? It's, it's not, yeah. you know, it's all about when you started and how many things you've been putting towards what you're going for. And I think this is a great lesson for anybody younger that's listening to this. Maybe you're still in high school, still in college. Yeah. What can you be doing right now that points you towards what you're trying to accomplish? Because you're going to be able to level up faster than if you wait. And I think that's just a really good thing. Anything that you would say, what would you tell younger people? Uh, as far as like the best ways to do that, the best mindset to have when
2: it comes to this idea? Like, what would you tell? So um, two things I want to hit on there. One is, um, so I still have all my notes from high school of all the early game designs, uh, like all the earlier iterations. And I look at them, I'm like, wow, look how far I've gone. So one is, you know, embrace where you're at, look on the past and look on your achievements and how you've grown. Don't get discouraged of where you are at today. Look look at where you were yesterday and how you've improved, right? One of the things I remember hearing a lot was um, the only competition you should really be looking at is your past self. Have you grown as a person? And then the other thing that I tell my game design team this all the time, I say it as my own personal mantra, but it's learn, pivot, keep moving. You will make lots of mistakes in your life. You will stumble, you will fall. And it's okay at that moment to feel that pain. But as you move forward, what did you learn from it? What mistakes did you make? And how do you make sure you don't make those mistakes again? Those are your pivots. And then you just keep going down this new path. Keep moving forward without making the same mistakes you made in the past. Because the only way to succeed, the only path of success is through failure.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's something I talked to my 10th graders about. I say you don't compare yourself to Tolkien yeah. or J.K. Rowling or you know, any of these amazing writers who've been writing forever and then you know hit it big. And all, don't compare yourself to them. That's crazy. Compare yourself to yourself a year ago. Are mm-hmm. you better now than you were a year ago? But then also compare yourself to where you want to be and then you look mm-hmm. at the gap there and then you just keep keep working, yeah. keep grinding, keep you know, figuring things out. Same thing with game design. Uh, mm-hmm. Don't worry about all these other great designers and all these amazing Kickstarter projects. <laughs> don't worry about that. Just, yeah. just compete against yourself to be the best you, the best designer that mm-hmm. you can be. All right. So let's get into Genesis. Tell me about the design of it. Like, how does it work? You know, I want to give people kind of an idea of framework for for what this game is. And then we'll get into kind of the deeper aspects. We'll get into the business side, all those other things. But first of all, tell me about the
2: game and then like how it came to be. All right. So the game as it stands right now, it's this idea of Uh, Most CCGs, you stand behind your hand as a Planeswalker, as a Pokemon Master, as whatever, and you're sending your creatures out to fight for you. And sometimes you're throwing spells with them, uh, and you are engaging, but for the most part, you're a passive player behind your hand. I wanted to give players an opportunity to get out from behind their hand and actually be in the action themselves. So in Genesis, you pick a champion, and you play as that character. You and your champion are one-on-one during gameplay, and it's about bringing your opponent's health down to zero. Uh, The gameplay itself is very much of that gladiatorial arena-style combat where it's you and your opponent trapped in a 5 by uh, by 6 grid arena, and everything you play is bounded by distance and direction. If you want to punch your opponent, you have to physically move your card towards your opponent and actually get them within your awareness and actually punch them. You can't just stand on the other side of the board and swing a punch. So when everything is bounded by distance and direction, it gives us another level of balance that we're looking at of, okay, you have the spell, you can sling it far away, and because of that, it gives you some advantages, but it also has has its own disadvantage where if someone's up close, it does nothing. So bringing in that element of uh, tactical play uh, makes it very different. And the way we came about designing it, uh, so I played Magic for a long time, but I also played Warhammer, I played my own share of video games, And a lot of games that exist now didn't exist at the time Magic was around. So Magic, for its time, its original conception was gorgeous. Like, this is one thing I try to tell my game designers. Just because we're competing against Magic does not mean we can't sit back and appreciate how amazing of a game it is. For where it was when it started, it was so innovative and so powerful and I want to leverage a lot of the strengths it has and where it is today is also amazing in the regards of its marriage between flavor and mechanic you can't deny that some of the things they do is just so well put together and that's what we should be aspiring towards in a lot of ways um so I took the elements from magic that I really like but I also took elements from Warhammer that I really liked of this idea of you know having these armies and having this kind of cinematic thing going on. Taking photos of a gameplay of Warhammer is just, it's so pretty. (laughs) And that was a big thing we wanted. We wanted people to feel a lot more engaged. We wanted a different level of play there. So I took elements from there. And then uh, the thing that kind of rounded it all together was this idea of um, the gladiator fighting. Uh, I wanted people to feel like when they enter the arena, they could feel people around them watching the two gladiators fight it out. Uh, So when I brought all those things together, we ended up creating a game experience that was very, very different than uh, any other collectible card game at its point. And now when people sit down and play it, that's the one thing that I hear the most is that this is unique. This is different. Uh, And I love that. I mean, that's what you try to hit as a game designer.
1: Yeah. Very cool. Now let's get into the art just a little bit. One thing about magic, it has a very specific style, even yes. with, you know, thousands of different artists. Yeah. It still comes together. You know, you when you see a magic card, you know, it's a magic card. Mm-hmm. The layout, the graphic design, the art, all that kind of thing. So tell me what you were thinking when it came to Came time to create art and graphic design templates, different things for your cards and what you were trying to accomplish because you don't want to look like Mike, like you just said, you want to stand out. You don't want to look like Magic or yeah. any other game, but at the same time, you know, a card is not very much space, and you got to, you know, certain icons. You got to have certain yeah. information on there that's similar to other games. So, how did yeah. you, set, you know, set yourself apart while at the same time trying to look great and accomplish the look that you were going for?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a key to that is your team. All right, uh, my art team, I they are just hands down some of the greatest people I've ever met and their passion and devotion to the project is amazing. Uh, And a big thing to having a great team is you got to trust them. You can't just try to pigeonhole them or tell them what they should be doing all the time. You got to trust them to do their own thing and to bring their own flair to the uh, style. So when it comes to Genesis, we took a few different approaches. One, we got an art director, Damian, who, Uh, even though he's young he is so smart and he can put all this together and he can lead a team that um, like that kind of passion that kind of commitment you can't stifle that you have to let that flourish so giving him a lot of responsibility to run his team the second thing is coming back to that core how do we design the game what makes the game different and going back to that gladiator that arena style combat uh, we really wanted to put it uh, create artwork that actually put the characters into the artwork itself so majority of the cards we have uh we don't have characters that you don't know doing spells now in our earlier edition of the game when we first launched in alpha and beta we did that because we didn't have all the characters created yet but now that we have all the created characters created we make sure that if there is a spell card like someone slinging a fireball it is one of our mages doing it so that when you are playing the game and you play that fireball card and you are playing with that mage as well, it connects it. You feel so much more engaged. And then you get people who want to design decks. That's so like, I'm playing with this character. The only artwork I'm going to use are examples of this character doing something. So they are actually playing with the character. Uh, they are focusing everything around that particular style of artwork. So it comes back to, um, if you ever, well, I'm sure you have, and a lot of, pe- of your fans have read the book, but the... the um, Art of game design through lenses. One of the things they talk about is that game, desi- a gaming and a game design is all about creating that experience. So what is your core experience that you want the players to face? For us, it was that arena style combat. So everything we did down to the artwork focuses around that arena style combat. So those two things together, trusting the, uh, the art director to empower his team to give the best artwork they can is That's one way we stand out and the other is by creating that uh, experience. Gotcha. All right,
1: let's look at playtesting for a minute. <laughs> playtesting for these kinds of games is so yes. different oh, yeah. than other games. It's so much more important, especially if you're going to run tournaments. I want to talk to you about tournaments <laughs> in just a little bit. But tell me about your your playtesting system because I mean, even even with Magic the Gathering, they have you know thousands, thousands of playtesters. Yes. Even still, little loopholes come in, and they have oh, to yeah. ban cards in tournaments because you know things get broken and imbalanced, things like that. So tell me about your playtesting system, why you do certain things, and maybe even going towards the future, like what you're trying to accomplish long term. Yes. So
2: um, one thing we talked about actually last time I was uh, on here was uh, I have a background in software testing. And compared to any other gaming platform, uh, CCGs are closer to software than they are to the board game experience, especially when it comes to testing. Because uh, one, it's a never-ending machine. You can constantly release new sets, which can patch up things from the past. Uh, That's one thing. Two, players are very comfortable and familiar with cards getting a or getting banned if they need to be. So those two tools are very, very powerful when it comes to uh, the way we do testing. Unlike a regular board game, if I think of a board game like, um, I don't know, if we go back to Dominion or uh, any of those one, uh, I like to call them one and done board games where you design them, they go on the shelf and they're kind of done at that point. Uh, You have to have the rules perfect at that point because you don't get any opportunities to patch it up later on. Where with us, if we release a card that's semi-broken or does ruin the experience, we can either Arata it, which we've done, we've banned one card so far because it just had to be banned, or we release new cards in future sets, which will help mitigate issues that are existing in current game uh, metas. So that opportunity is very, very powerful. So we leverage those tools. We have them at our disposal. We will use them. Uh, the second thing we do is something I like to call the Future League. So in software testing, you normally have a few different environments that you develop on. You have your local environment, which is just for the developers, and they are developing and they're testing on that local environment. Then you go to a staging environment where the QA team gets involved and they are testing it. So this is internal testing. Then you have external testing, and that's an environment called Sandbox, where you give it out to uh, select clients and they get to use the latest version as soon as possible, and they can help you find issues because they know more about the context and the use of your product than you do. So you have to leverage their expertise in your testing experience, and then you finally release it to production. So you have a few different layers that you go through. For us at Haunted Castle Gaming, we do the same approach. So we have a local environment, which is what we use Slack for. Someone posts up a card, and everyone else just uh, berades it with, oh, have you thought about this uh, edge case? Have you thought about that? Oh, does this wording match up with that card's wording? All those little nuances we catch in Slack. Then we have an internal test group, which is every Friday, as a game design team, we meet up, we talk about each card and anything that we see as a critical point. If someone says, I think this card's broken, then someone else in the team will be like, all right, your goal for next meeting is to bring a deck where you break that card. And we empower each other to try to find those edge cases then we have our future league and this is the one thing i'm most proud of where we actually open it up to anyone who plays genesis to join our future league and every two weeks they get emailed a uh, pdf of all the cards we're planning to release sometime in the future and they can start proxying those cards and playing with them on a uh, local level with their friends, with their, uh, with other people that they want to play with, and then uh, what we're planning to do in the future is to use the future league team to actually host once a month tournaments where they actually are playing with proxy cards competitively, so we can see how they use those cards in that mindset, and actually get to test those cards. And then when all that's done, then we'll use the future leaguers to actually proofread all our cards before we send them out to the printers. So. That's how we do our testing process. It is very different, but in some ways it is very similar to board games. It's just uh, you may be calling it different things, but it, it has its differences. It has its similarities.
1: Yeah, I think the biggest difference is the scale. You know, if I'm making a board game, I don't have to think about all the other board games that I've designed and make sure this board <laughs> game also works with it or yeah. works with them. It's yeah. all balanced together. I don't have to think about that. When you have a new set coming out of a yeah. CCG, you got to make sure these things work together with all the other sets that have come out. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think Magic they have different rules where you know they they basically say, okay, you can only use cards from this set yeah. on, and it, yeah, just basically you
2: know get rid of stuff out of <laughs> tournaments in that way. They don't have to think about everything. Let me so, touch on that ahead. for a second. Um, so. A lot of people who play Magic think that it's a money grab, the reason why Magic expires cards over time. But it is it is brilliant on the design approach. Because like you're saying, you can't keep in mind every single card you've designed. So if you're thinking about 2,000 different elements of your game, how do you bring in one new thing and not know how it's going to interact with those 2,000 elements? Magic has thousands, if not They have to be approaching that 100,000 million type of slot when it comes to different cards. You can't think of every single combination. But when you have millions of people playing, eventually one of them will. And this is where you got to leverage your community, leverage the players who are playing the game to help you find those things as soon as possible. The other thing is we created this um, concept that we talk about on a scale from one to 10, how open is this card? Cards are either open or closed. If a card's closed, then as game designers, we can consciously think of every permutation that card can be used in. So something like a card that says, draw two cards. There's no way to abuse that because we can think of every permutation that card can be used in because all it's going to ever do is draw you two cards. But if you have another card that says, um, search your deck for a card and add it into your hand, that's much more open because then that's dependent on how good the deck is. Or even further down the line is something like Magic has these cards called the Wishes, which allow you to take cards that aren't in your deck from outside the game and bring them into your hand. And that just has infinite permutations. You can never think of all the different combinations with that. And that card's seen as super open. So the more open a card is on the game design end, uh, the less likely we will publish that card because we don't want to risk creating a card that will break the game.
1: Yeah, definitely. Just a lot of stuff yes. to think about. All right, you mentioned tournaments just for a second. Let's let's go a little bit deeper into that. How in the world do you create a tournament system? What are you mm-hmm. trying to accomplish right now? Like, what are you doing right now? What are you trying to get to in the future? Tell me about that because this is something you know <laughs> most people don't have to think about yes. with, with board game. You know, they, they might run a tour- tournament or something randomly at a convention, something like that. But you're trying to do tournament play, and so right. how
2: in the world does that work? So, uh, just to take one step back, this is actually one thing that we've talked about about the. Uh, at least internally in the game design team. And I'd love for your community to reach out to me at some time and challenge me on this theory because I'm trying to refine it and I want to get it as solid as possible. But I find that games go through three different phases. There are games, there are hobby games, and then there are sports. A game, uh, so a hobby game has three pillars. Uh, There is the self, a portion of the game that's dedicated to um, self-reflection, self-entertainment. Uh, There is the others, a portion of the game that's dedicated towards a local group of players, and then the others, a portion of the game that's dedicated to the grand scheme of players. Um, Games themselves are missing one of those three pillars, so most of the time they're missing the others, which is the portion of the game that's dedicated to the large scope of players. Uh, Hobby games include all three. Sports are that, but there's external parties that are funding the mechanism, the entire engine to grow. So... Digging into the competitive side, we realized for Genesis to become a hobby, we needed all three pillars. So the self we were able to get, that's from uh, articles, YouTube videos, uh, deck design. These are things that people can be doing in their spare time when they want to talk about Genesis. They go on Discord, they go to Facebook, they can talk with others about it and they could be using their personal time to do it. We had local groups playing together. So we had people all across Ontario who are playing at their own hobby shop, playing Genesis, and that's great because that creates that kind of um those environments, those pockets of people who are playing. But to take it to the next level, we needed everyone to get together for at least uh, at least once a year to play on a larger scale, and that's what makes the game into a hobby because then you have a reason to push yourself further than just hitting status quo or being where you're where you are comfortable at in the gameplay. So we needed to put together our championship tournament. So we did our first one in November. And we're planning to keep these as yearly events uh, where you come together. There's a decent enough prize pool that you really want to compete for first place. uh, And we make it a bit of a spectacle. We had a free dinner. We were giving out um, buttons. If you challenge the game designers and you beat them, you got a button. It was just a whole day of a lot of fun related around Genesis. It was like a mini convention just dedicated towards Genesis. And on top of that, we had the championship tournament going on. And having that was very important because it gave people a reason or goal to stay on top of meta. And I like that phrasing because if you don't have one of these bigger tournaments, then people have no reason to stay on top of the competitive scene of your game. Uh, So we had our championship tournament happen in November. And then after that, we had people say, I don't want to wait till next November for the next championship tournament. Can you host other smaller tournaments? So starting in February, every two months, we're going to be hosting circuit tournaments where people can get together and still compete on that competitive level. Uh, Organizing the competitive play was a bit of a nightmare and I'm learning about it. And this comes back to what we were saying earlier. You're not going to be perfect at everything on your first go. You try it. You learn what your mistakes were. You pivot and you make sure you don't make those mistakes again. And then you do it again. You keep moving forward. So after the championship was done, we sent out a survey. We got everyone as many people willing to fill it out and tell us where we messed up and we'll make sure we won't mess up like that again. So uh, we're going to make sure that the next, the first circuit event will be a little bit better and then the second one will be better and so on and so forth until we get this process down.
1: Yeah, very cool. Real quick, define what you mean by stay up on the
2: meta as, as okay. far as
1: it goes with these kinds of games.
2: Yeah, so um, these type of games, what's considered the best deck or the most competitive deck, uh, those... Top decks are usually considered the meta. Those are the ones you want to focus around on either how to beat or how to master. Uh, So in Genesis, we had three core decks that came up as the meta. One was uh, an angel deck. So we have our one creature, Angel of Retribution, which is so powerful that people built a deck around it. There was another one champion, Rain, who has the ability to teleport in gameplay, which gives her a huge leg up in the tactical side. So people try to make a one-turn kill deck with her. And then there was the um, mid-range Raha Boltshot deck. And that was the deck that ended up taking the tournament. Uh, so Boltshot being another really powerful card, which paired up with this champion really well. So um, people were playing with Raha and uh, to win that tournament. So those three decks, either you're looking at playing as one of those decks and mastering it, or you're trying to bring in a new deck to take down one of those three decks. So those three decks are considered the meta, And being aware of them and trying to compete against them, that's what we say, staying on top of the meta. Gotcha.
1: And then tell me about, like, how do you qualify for the tournament? Because I I feel like that could also be a very interesting (laughs) system you have to create and things like that. Yes.
2: So in Ontario law, uh, it was was interesting. We had to work with the city and uh, the city hall to make sure that our tournament was legal in all regards. So in Ontario... Uh, if you are charging people to enter, there is randomness and there's a prize. It's considered gambling, and once it's considered gambling, only people 18 or older were al- allowed to compete, and we had to get a license and all this stuff. So we decided to forego this and make the tournament free, and actually write it up as a marketing expense because really, uh, that's what I consider it. It's part of the marketing side. It's the reason. It's the hype of getting people up and playing. Uh, so entry was completely free. Uh, and the way we looked at the sales process for this was that people were so adamant on trying to stay on top of Meta to be competitive that we made a lot of our money back before the event even happened through our sales to the local game shops. So when it came to this kind of competitive thing, we had to think a few steps ahead of what is our process of making our money back? What is our sales process? What is our marketing effort that we're putting into it? Uh, And how do we get people interested? Now, when it comes to the circuit tournaments, we're doing something a little bit different because we want to encourage players to play on the local level. To compete on the circuit level, you have to compete on your local level and have your games recorded and sent to uh, the company. So I know all the people who are playing on the local level. And then those players are the only ones who are eligible to play in the circuit level. So still, there's no entry fee. But... You need. we want to encourage people to be playing on some sort of local level. So that's how we do the whole entire eligibility. Yeah,
1: very cool. That's a, that's a really interesting way to do it, especially, you know, open it up for free and just bring more people and you, you build more hype when you do that because you can even draw more more people in. Uh, let's, let's continue talking about sales. How do you make one of these games into a product, right? Cause it's not just a game. This has to be a product that, that lasts for a good long time and constantly bringing new people in. And so tell me what you were thinking about
2: when, when it came to the productability of, of your game. So one of the biggest, um, epiphany moments or the aha moment I had earlier on in the process was when I was applying for a government grant for my company and I was there going through the process, the application and everything. And, um, I was talking to the coordinator and he was like, Is your company B2C or B2B? And in my mind, I constantly thought, Okay, it's a B2C because most of the people in this space are actually B2C. They're trying to sell directly to customers. I should define that. So, B2C is business to customer, where you are selling directly to your end users. B2B is business to business. So, that's where I actually found myself in. I'm not selling directly to the players. I sell to the stores and the stores sell to the players. So my customers, the people I need to focus on are the stores. And when I realized that, I realized the sales process is very, very different for this the, compared to a lot of what a lot of my peers were doing. So I actually spend a lot of my time listening to podcasts around um, B2B sales. So on top of listening to this podcast and other game design podcasts, I'm listening to sales podcasts, I'm listening to entrepreneur podcasts, because... Understanding the sales process and how do you get in front of a store—it's very, very different. So, uh, just as a story, I worked with—I'm now partnered with this one store here in Ontario—and that process to between the initial introduction, getting the products on the shelves, and actually uh, getting the community—it took six months. It took three months. Every two to three weeks, I'll go into the store and be like, "Is the store owner available right now?" of course there's always no because store owners are always extremely busy so if you get their time respect their time because they are super busy so i would sit in front of him eventually after going in there four or five times he was like okay i have a few minutes let's talk i sat with him and i was like all right i have this product i'm thinking it would work really well for your store here's the research i've done on your store and why we would be a good, good fit and uh This is what I think our next steps can be. Can I sit down with you for a proper 30-minute meeting and actually talk to you about the game? I eventually got that 30-minute meeting. We set up our uh, open houses. We started building the community. And then I had to spend a lot of focus on working with that community, getting it stable, and making sure that when those players come out and they are there to play Genesis and just say there's six of them playing Genesis and 20 people playing Magic, those six people are more excited about the game they're playing compared to to having that FOMO feeling of why am I not playing Magic, right? That's a huge issue that I'm always dealing with. So um, it is an ongoing struggle. It is a huge grind. And unless you're willing to commit 100% of your attention to this entire problem space, it's really hard to envision anyone being truly successful here.
1: So, yeah. So what are some ways that you can actually you know, work with the game store owners to support them? And do, what are some of the things you found that work really well to make them want to sell your game and want to put your game out there on the shelf and things
2: like that? Yeah. So I, I don't know what it's like in the um, board game space because I'm purely in the hobby space. So it may be different. It may be similar. But I can tell you a little bit about my challenges. So one, store owners are enthusiastic they are wonderful people they would not be good people if they were if they're running a hobby shop they are gamer enthusiasts and they are great people to hang around with so give them respect and show them you know your passion towards your game but also understand that they are running a business at the end of the day bottom line they need to be making money and if you are going to be taking money away from them and not helping them get their money back it's a pain point for them. It's a huge challenge that they're looking at every single day. So um, the big thing I looked at was how do I create a win-win situation? How do I help them uh, at as low of a cost as possible? So where a lot of my competitors, they say, okay, if you want to order this product, here's the minimum you can order. I say, there's no minimum. Whatever you want to order, that's what you order. And I will help you stay restocked. I will take a lot of the burden off of your plate for as long as possible And then when it starts becoming something that I can't help you with all the time, uh, this is how we transition into it's something you can do very easily at very low risk for you. That's the big thing you got to be looking at. How do you minimize the risk all the time? How do you help them get money into the store? So uh, like every store that I partnered with, I've helped them at least break even so that they're not offended by how much money they've spent. But if I didn't help them break even then they're gonna next time I go up to them and say, I have another product I wanna sell, they're like, I still got the other ones on the shelves. Why am I gonna buy your first one? Right? You gotta realize that they're running a business all the time. And for them, money in is just as important is more important than money out. So you gotta be helping them make that money.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now can people also buy
2: the game on your website? Like can they buy it in other places or are you just focusing on game stores? Uh, so that was actually a very interesting conversation and I uh held off selling it online for a very long time it because I wanted to make sure my store my partner stores were comfortable with it. So what we did, I actually sat with all my stores, I do sell it on website, I do sell it on Amazon, but I sell it for about 10% more expensive on our website so that people are more encouraged to go to their hobby store and buy it. And they're encouraged to convince their hobby store to carry inventory because then they could get a savings. So yes, we do sell it on GenesisBattlechampions.com, we sell it on Amazon Prime uh Amazon.ca Prime. Uh, So it is all available there. But if you want the product and you want to get it at a reasonable price, the big key is to convince the store owners to start carrying the product because then you can get your discount.
1: Yeah, definitely. And now one thing, a lot of, you know, board game publishers, any, any game publisher, no matter if you're in CCG or normal games, whatever, is distribution and getting to a point where distributors will, you know, put your game in their magazine, in their monthly newsletter, whatever, and that way you, you know, people can order from or game stores can order from the distributor and then work out in that system. That's extraordinarily difficult, no matter who you are and what game you have. And so I can imagine it's very difficult for a CCG as well. And you have, I know, based on our previous conversation, you've done just a ton of hustling and going out <laughs> to game stores and meeting game store owners, things like that. Uh, have you been able to get into any kind of distribution so far? And and, and well answer
2: that first. Let's say that's still a work in progress, but okay. uh, the key that I'm banking on is uh if you if you are interested in the whole entire distribution and how do you partner with them, especially so in CCGs if the stores are reluctant, the distributors are a thousand times more reluctant. Uh so understanding the complex sale and there's an entire thing the brutal tr- brutal truth about sales. Um, they do great podcasts about this type of stuff, but understanding the complex sales and how all that comes together and also understanding that it's a long process. You're not going to just sit with them and they're going to say yes right away. It could take you eight months. It could take you 12 months. In my case, I've been talking to them for a year now and the conversation is shifting. They are more encouraging, but it's still not a definitive yes, but it's not a definitive no either. And that's the important thing to keep yourself positive and keep on pushing forward.
1: Yeah. And as you work through this process of trying to, to make it happen, what are some things you've learned that will make a game more distributable than others? Like, what, what would you tell somebody if they're just starting out? You know, maybe yeah. some things you've learned or changed, that kind of thing to kind of help this
2: process along. Uh, it's the one advice that I got, and it was from a store owner, and I really love this, but he said, at the end of the day, you got to give me a reason to care for your product. Uh, you got to give me a reason to constantly be checking on this. Uh, inventory and ordering more because even if they sell out of inventory, some of the stores just won't tell you that they've sold out. And then you're there losing out on its sales potential because they don't care enough. So talk to the store owners, talk to the distributors and talk about, ask them, what do they care about? How can you refine your pro- uh, product to get it to a point that they're like, yes, I want to carry about this. I want to promote it. And I want it to grow. And until you start getting that feedback, uh, you won't know. And every store is different. Every distributor is different. There's no silver bullet with this. you got to constantly be asking questions, figuring out what, you, what they like about your product, what they don't like, and how can you improve. And if you lose a sale, ask them, okay, what can I do better? And if you get a sale, ask them, why did I get the sale? What did you really like about this? And how can I make sure I give the same great experience to someone else?
1: Definitely. All right, let's keep talking about sales. You know, in in 2020, people that want or need money for a board game or a company board game project, whatever, they yeah. go to Kickstarter. That's just kind of <laughs> what, the way it goes. Yes. But CCGs typically don't do very well on yeah. Kickstarter or well at all. Yeah. And so, why do you think that is? And is there any way a person could could do a
2: successful Kickstarter project, in your opinion, with a CCG? So uh, earlier in 2019, and it. Part of me is always like, oh, I shouldn't be telling people about our competitors, but this is a great study. So earlier in 2019, a CCG did hit Kickstarter and they were extremely well funded. It's called Argent Saga and they spread around the US and it's a great game, but it's the same thing with Kickstarter. I think we're getting to that point where Kickstarters and looking for angel investors or anything like that. There's a few similarities. One of the biggest similarities is Traction. Can you prove that your product's actually worth the money to put into it? And CCG is because if you're going to get into a hobby game, you're not just going to buy it and put it on your shelf. You're going to play it for months, years, hopefully decades. Uh, there are people who have been playing Magic for 30 years, right? If you are going to get into a new hobby game, you want to make sure it's going to last. And how do you do that? How do you prove that it's going to last unless you've already proven that it's lasted? right? You need a little bit more evidence behind it than other games. And this is part of the reason why we haven't taken to Kickstarter yet. Uh, and not to say that that may not change in the future. I know last time we spoke about this, I said, no, Kickstarter says dead end for CCGs. I don't think that's true. It's nothing's a dead end. It's just you need to know the right time to do it. You need to be able to prove to the community that you put enough behind it to make it work. So Argent Saga, they actually got funded, and I think a big reason they got funded was the people who created it proved that they know about the game space because they are the some of the top Yu-Gi-Oh, or I think they're Yu-Gi-Oh and Pokemon players that came together. Uh, World Championship winners came together to make Argent Saga. On top of that, they had their store that they uh, were part of originally had already been hosting tournaments, so they know about the tournament scene. So they they had so much proof behind who they were as founders, that people were willing to back the game. Uh, the, but a lot of people who go to CCGs, take CCGs to Kickstarters, they don't have the proof to show that as founders, they have everything under their belt to actually launch it. Actually, to be honest, I don't even think I'm at the point where I'm comfortable to say to everyone that I have all the information I need to um, uh, to get this thing going on forever. But I am confident enough to say that I I know what I'm doing and I can get it to last till at least five years from now. And that's the thing that a lot of people are banking on is that I have proven to them that I can, I've can i done great so far and that I will continue to do great for at least another five years. And having that proof, it's I think that's the hardest part about it all.
1: Yeah, for sure. All right. So if Kickstarter is not really an option for most people, then how in the world do you finance one of these things? How in the <laughs> world do you budget for different things? Like, let's talk about kind of the business side of things, You know, yeah. some things that you're doing, maybe some mistakes you've made, different <laughs> things along those lines.
2: So at the end of the day, it's n- I didn't make a collectible card game. I made a company that sells a collectible card game. And that's a really, really important distinction to make. I spend a lot of my time, actually 80% of my time is about the business end of it. And I am out there going to pitch competitions. I am out there applying to grants and loans. I am out there because I believe it's a company and we are solving a problem, which is that people spend way too much time on digital gaming platforms. They need to be in physical space. And I think hobbies are great because like, the hobby games are great because it gives them something to do uh, for a very, very long period of time. It's not just one year. It could be 10 years. It could be 15 years. And that's a really, really great space for gamers to be in. Uh, so th- because of that, I am looking at other avenues for financing outside of Kickstarter. I also am running Patreon subscriptions because and the people who subscribe to Patreon are people who believe that they want to see this product uh, last for a very long time. We're also re- able to reward them on a monthly basis, so every single month we send them Uh, booster packs along with promos exclusive promos that they couldn't get anywhere else so it gives them kind of this inside knowledge and then we also leverage them Uh, recently i'm designing a card right now i can't think of a great name i've reached out to the patreon community and i'm like can you help me name this card so having that is a really really great model to have um and yeah like those are the big things but at the end of the day the only true way to grow your company and to do well, uh, like stable in your finances, is through sales. And you just need to be out there hustling and selling and refining that process of becoming a better salesperson.
1: Yeah, for sure. All right, a few times you've mentioned your team and different teams, different <laughs> people that are working for you. Tell me about how you kind of manage. Well, oh. first of all, tell me what the different teams are, <laughs> and then how do you manage these things? Like, tell me about your system, like for your company and, and the people that work for it.
2: So I have three core teams. I have my game design team, I have a content team, and I have the art team. And at the end of the day, I've watched a lot of videos about um, how to run teams and how to manage people. It it comes down to one thing. If you're going to bring these people onto your team, trust them. Trust them that they know what they're doing. Uh, That doesn't mean that you don't double check some of their work, but It also doesn't mean that you need to be in the thick of it all the time. I'm very proud that for my game design team, uh, majority of the time they don't need me at all. I come in on one meeting on Fridays. I sit with them. I give them kind of the report. I update them on things that are on my mind. They update me with things that are on their mind. And we do a couple of cards together so that they can see my process of game design and I can help them refine their process for game design. But they are autonomous they can do things really really well and i think for the most part at even where we are now i could probably leave them and they could probably design an entire set on their own will it be completely under my vision and the way i wanted the game to go there might be some pitfalls but for the most part 90 95 of it i'm sure that they can do it the art team i've already gotten to a point where i'm more or less autonomous with it i have the art director once a week, I have a one-on-one with him for 30 minutes. He catches me up with everything that's happening with the team, and then he goes and does one-on-ones with the rest of his team members to make sure that they're happy that they understand the project that they're growing. Uh, you need to empower the people who work with you just because you created the game does not mean that you have the best answers to everything you've designed. These The people I work with are extremely smart, extremely passionate. And I want to encourage that. I want to incubate that. I don't want to feel, let them feel that they're stifened at any point. So that's the way I run it. It's, it's very different than what a lot of people are used to. And on that note, I've had a lot of people come and work with me, especially on the art side, where they come in and they're like, oh, I give them their assignment and I say, I want you to do this. And they're like, okay, I need more description or something like that. And I'm like, no, I want you to figure it out. And they don't like that. They don't like having that autonomy. So then they leave the project. And that's okay, too. Just the people who you work with, make sure that they are on the same wavelength as you.
1: Yeah, definitely. As, as any good leader knows, you're only as good as the people you surround yourself with. Yeah. And so you know, figuring out ways to work alongside people and make it collaborative and, and things like that goes a long way. Now, let's kind of look towards the future of things. Tell me about how, tell me the process of designing a new set, all right? You're going to come out with something new. You're going to maybe have some new mechanisms, some new things going on. What all goes into that process? And just kind of walk
2: me through, through it. Uh, there's so much to tackle on that. But at the end of the day, I think a big thing comes down to communication. Make sure that the people who you're talking to, um, they understand your vision and that they can communicate it downwards to the next level so that they can understand the overall vision. Documenting things as much as possible so that if someone says, oh, I didn't know it was supposed to be that way, it would be like, it was in the document. Make sure you're reading the document so you're able to not just correct things when things go off, but also empower people to go back and do their research and figure out what they want to add uh, to the project or how they can take things their own way. Um And then when it comes to designing a new set, uh, it is challenging. So we have the first six sets kind of mapped out. And I designed these a long time ago. So uh, every time we take one step forward in one aspect, so just say we're designing the new set, I'm already one step ahead of that. So I'm designing the set right after that. But I'm also designing, uh, we are, in some ways, we've designed the first six sets. I'm starting to design the high level of the next six sets. And I'm also working with the game design team so that they can start designing the next success so that I don't have to be involved with that either. So it's always uh, you have to put drops in every single bucket you're working on, not just what's in front of you, but what's one year ahead of you, five years ahead of you, 10 years ahead of you. You want to be adding a little bit to everything so that when you get to that next stage, some of the lessons learned from the earlier stage can be carried forward and that you're not just starting completely from zero you already have a few ideas listed. Um, Besides that, it's all about balancing. And our analytics uh, behind balancing a set is ridiculous. Uh, And I'm very proud of our analytics and our spreadsheets and how much we stay on top of it. But there's so much more room to grow. There's so much opportunity to make things better. So um, we've released some cards that are super powerful and borderline broken, but we are staying on top of it to make sure that those cards don't get out of control and that the game doesn't become broken and dead.
1: Yeah. There are just so many things you have to think about both tactically with your company, because you got, you know, today, this week, next month, but then strategically of thinking, okay, Mm -hmm. four sets from now, we (laughs) want to do this. And so let's make sure we're doing certain things today that line up with those things, you know, four sets from now, two years from now, whatever it looks like, just so many things to to be aware of and on top of.
2: And it's the same thing in like software design. If you're, you know, it's not like the people at um, Microsoft are sitting there and only planning for what's coming out tomorrow. No, they're planning things years in advance. The documentation on how to do stuff like this has been out there for a very long time. It just comes with practice. It's it's something you can't be afraid of and you guys just start doing. Uh, you're not going to get better unless you just start doing it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, absolutely. And continuing the discussion on the future, have you thought about a digital version? You know, there's lots of games that have either gone digital or there's just lots of CCGs that are only in digital format. So have you thought about that at all? And and tell me kind of the pros and cons of either way.
2: Uh, The millions of times I've been asked this question and I got in deep arguments about it. Yes, there (laughs) is more money out there going into the digital space. Yes, it is. In some ways, it's a lot easier. In other ways, it's a lot more challenging. So if you're going to go digital, the thing is you need developers. And uh, yes, you can get investment a lot easier to get those developers, but you have to pay off all your investment. And if you're selling equity in your company, you're also losing control over the direction of your company. So is that something you want to do? Um, If anyone out there is thinking about opening up their game design studio and they're trying to create their own company and incorporate it, be very, very cautious on how you sell equity. Trust me, I have horror stories and i am on the bottom totem pole when it comes to the horror stories out there about selling equity um so that's a whole other beast to kind of tackle the reason why we didn't go digital is because one of my core beliefs as a game designer is that games part of the goal of the game should be uniting people together and in this digital space I've worked on computers my entire life. My dad came to Canada to work on computers. I've been on the digital side for so long. And I've seen how since the advent of the internet, my household was one of the first families to actually get internet set up and intranet set up. And I saw like in our area, I'm not saying in the world, but in our area, out of my friends, we were one of the first families to get it. And I saw that the more the internet expanded, the more, Emotionally detached we are. The harder it is to become friends. The I my mom was one of those people. She would walk into a party and become best friends with everybody who was in there. But now I more and more people I meet, they're like, I haven't made a friend in five years. I'm like, well, that's that's difficult. That's painful. And I was in the same boat until I started this company. The last friend I made, well, there was my wife, but before her was in high school. So it was like a good six, seven year gap where I just never made friends. Even though I was going to school, I was going to university. Um, And it's, I think that the digital side, it's important in some regards, but we cannot neglect or cannot turn a blind eye to the damages it causes. And that's why it's so important that, We make physical games and get people to sit at a physical table, looking their opponents in the eye. So when you beat them, you can't just be mean. You have to, you're actually going to feel their pain and you can relate as humans and you can create these bonds and create these friendships. It is so critical that we do this. And the more I'm in this industry, the more I'm realizing that millennials who are having kids that are now getting into to a point that they're into gaming so we're talking about a few generations from me and uh they those kids are starting to grow up playing board games because their parents want these kids to actually make real friends not just digital friends and okay i can, I can ramble forever about this but boiling it back to my core point We need to get back to the table. We need to be getting back to making real friends, sitting across from us, and connecting that way. And it doesn't mean you don't follow up with them on Facebook or text message or something like that. But meet your friends and look them in the eye once in a while, too. Yeah. And this goes actually back in a really cool way to what we were talking about before we started recording
1: with the cycle of gaming and yes. the cycle of way, you know, games coming back and coming back around things like that. And so tell me a little
2: bit more about that <laughs> and kind of how this all plays in there together. So this is my second theory that I want any anybody else listening to this podcast to reach out to me and I, I would love to debate about this. Give me a phone call. I'll chat with you. Um, we can Skype, whatever. But um, So I have this theory about the cycle of gaming. So way back in the day, we uh, there was only physical games because that's the only thing that existed. I'm talking before the advent of digital you know, video games, anything like that. So we had uh, physical games, and then we saw the advent of the hobby games, D&D, Warhammer, then Magic comes out, huge breakthrough games, uh, getting huge audiences, but still considered part of that geek culture. Then uh, video games start coming out and you get all these people coming towards video games and kind of tossing aside their physical games for these digital games. Uh, Pinball, uh, you know, you have the asteroid games, you have Super Nintendo and all those kind of consoles start coming out. Then VR actually made its first appearance back in the 90s. It was a terrible mistake because the technology wasn't ready for it. But people kind of stuck to the video games for a very, very long time uh, with this future hope that VR was going to take over everything. Now we're seeing people go back to um, board games. And this was a big thing a couple of years ago uh, where, you know, board games were on such a huge rise. Kickstarter was a huge platform to make that happen. Game designers, it wasn't just to the exclusive few. Everyone was becoming a game designer. And that's great. That's a skill set that I think Everyone at some point in their life should practice. It's such a cool skill set to have. So we had all these game designers coming out, and some of the most amazing people were becoming game designers, and it was really, really cool. And then uh, now I'm seeing so many kids come into the hobby space. The amount of kids that come out to play uh, Pokemon tournaments is so much larger now than it was when I played Pokemon. Uh, And I have this theory that we're hitting that next wave in the cycle and that hobby games is gonna see a huge uh, increase. And as I talk to the stores, some of them are telling me that they're seeing a little bit more attendance than they did a few months ago or a year ago. And this theory I think is really, really great. We see the same cycle in uh, technology, but technology is so fast and rapidly growing that the cycles occur maybe every year or every two years. But with the gaming space, because we always have to hit that physical medium, which is a slower space, That's why I think these cycles are much longer. And this is why I think we're finally hitting our first uh, loop back. So I'm hoping that we're seeing a wave of hobby game players starting to emerge, um, recognizing that, yes, board games are great. but uh, And some people can refute me on this, but I've seen some people spend more on board games. Uh, Like they don't want to play Genesis because they say they're going to spend so much money on it. But then I see them toting around, you know, these hundred dollar board games, like six different board games are with them. And I'm like, you spent just as much money on those board games as you would on Genesis or less even on Genesis. Uh, so, uh, I think that we will start seeing some people coming up into the hobby game space, but as technology grows, we'll see more people go into the uh, video game space in maybe another five or 10 years from now. But this is the time where I think we're hitting that new wave of hobby game players. And, uh, I want to be on the forefront of that wave.
1: Yeah, we definitely live in exciting times, and I am very much glad to be along (laughs) for the ride. Yeah, well, Sad, this has been great. Let's get some closing thoughts. What would you tell somebody maybe sitting there listening to this, you know, thinking about a CCG, maybe the one they had five years ago was an idea, and then somebody just beat them down and said, "No, it's a terrible idea; don't ever do it." (laughs) What would you tell somebody maybe wanting to get into the CCG,
2: you know, publishing game, or wanting to design one, or anything along those lines? So I would say, first of all. Think of company first, product second. But at the same time, uh, what if the same people beat down you know, Steve Jobs or Steve Wozniak when they were founding Apple or even Richard Garfield when he was creating Magic? I mean, every startup is in an extremely competitive space. And the challenges you'll face in your startup is the same challenges every successful company started in their early days. It doesn't mean you shouldn't try But it just means you got to be a little bit smarter on how you do it. Think a little bit forward ahead. Do your research. Make sure that when you go to launch a product, it is something you're passionate about and that when you experience burnout, you're not just going to drop the project and go do something else. And then the other thing is um, consider it a full-time job. Don't just do it as a passing fling because if you're going to do a hobby game, your players are going to be expecting release cycles competitive to what Magic does. And that's really, really hard to do if you're doing it part-time. And they're also going to expect really high quality. And that's, again, really hard to do if you're doing it part-time. And then the other thing is learn about financing, learn about budget. It's a very, very minor thing, but it will save you so much. Um, So it's not impossible. You got to just be clever on how you do it. And that's my biggest tip. Awesome. Well, tell me where people can find Genesis. Tell me where they can find you on Patreon. Those kind of things. Uh, so, genesisbattlechampions.com is a website. Facebook, you can look up Genesis BOC or Genesis Battle Champions. Uh, Patreon, same, patreon.com slash genesisboc. Uh, you can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. So, you can look up Asit Qureshi on LinkedIn. Uh, or on Facebook, reach out to me. I'd love to chat uh, and talk about any of this stuff uh, along with... <laughs> as well with the any of those theories that I want to practice and refine.
1: Very cool. Well, Saad, so really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with Genesis Battle of Champions and the new sets and everything else you got going on right now. All
2: right. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing.